Welcome back to Real Talk Torah, courtesy of the database with Rabbi Yoshua Eisenberg. I'm Rabbi Yoshua Eisenberg, and you just entered the database. And for today's issue, we are going to talk about the Wicked Son and the Haggadah. And what exactly it is the Haggadah is asking us or recommending that we do to him and his teeth. Right? He asks a question. He says, what is this avoda to you? And the Haggadah says, Hakeas Shinov, that we should blunt his teeth. Like that sounds scary a little bit. Sounds maybe a little bit aggressive, a little bit violent, possibly. So what exactly does that mean? Is that really what we're supposed to do? Is the Haggadah maybe speaking to a different generation? Like what exactly does that mean? And what are we supposed to do with that? How exactly are we supposed to respond? to the Russia at the Seder table. So before we get to that, I want to just thank an anonymous sponsor who sponsored four multiple podcasts in honor of me, my wife Ziva, and our son Ovadia Moshe. This is in recognition of our hard work on the podcast, and it's also Lili Nishmas, Shmuel Menachem, and Aryeh Leib, and Leah Basavraham. Their Nishmas should happen. Aliyah, thank you so much for the sponsorship. Now, as... We delve into the issue of the Russia. So there's a lot to be said about really all of the four sons, and I can give you hours of material on the four sons and how profound each one is and how we're supposed to respond. The Haggadah brilliantly uh, capitalizes on the Torah's instruction for us, how we're supposed to address different kinds of children and the way Shlomo HaMelech put it, Chanoch Lenar Al Pidarko, that we are supposed to address each child as it befits him, and each child needs something different. And really at the Seder table, each individual needs something different. Probably one of the hardest things to do as a Masader or someone who's leading the Seder is to address each individual, their, each one's question, each one's interests, keeping everyone engaged, trying to come up with something that on the one hand is Shavu L'Chol Nefesh, that it's equal for, equal for everyone's consumption, but also tailored to the needs of each individual. Not just something that's broad enough for everyone to appreciate, but sometimes each individual needs a certain kind of attention. And the Russia, no differently, needs a certain kind of attention. So what exactly does it mean that we are supposed to blunt his teeth? Because right, sparing no feelings and offering no apologetics, the Haggadah plainly instructs us to blunt or dull the teeth of this wicked, cynical son. And I guess if this instruction is meant to be taken literally, so that aside from blowing the Russia's cynical question out of the water, apparently a father should theoretically put his son in his place, even if it takes some physical measure that might actually change the color of, the, of his teeth. So at the very least, it sounds controversial. And this instruction of fairly reasonably um, sparks various questions, such as whether or not such a treatment should be considered appropriate. Right? Again, is, is the Haggadah just speaking to an older generation? Also, will it, will it even be helpful to make any kind of physical contact with a child. So, obviously, these questions necessarily require us to also understand what it is that this rabbinic tradition recorded in the Lagada was really seeking to accomplish, 
with this particular instruction, and also what they even meant, what Chazal meant with this instruction in the first place. So, what did Chazal mean when they said to blunt the teeth of the wicked son? And is this response to the Rashta merely an archaic and barbaric way to silence the heretics who challenge us in our day? So I, wanna, I think it's important to mention that this extreme literalist approach to handling the Russia is most probably not what the Haggadah meant. And it'll be very clear very soon why I believe that. Because if one does some simple research, one would realize that the term blunting of the teeth, hakeis shinov, itself is actually a figurative one and has very specific connotations about how we should appropriately respond to this individual. And although the Haggadah is obviously the most famous place where we find such an expression, um, it's by no means exclusive to the Haggadah. If you look at the term, which appears actually many times throughout rabbinic literature, you'll notice that, in fact, Chazal did not intend that anyone should literally deliver any kind of blow or cause discoloration to his son's teeth. So just to quote you a couple of examples, the, in, uh, in the Gemara in Sota, actually, um, on Daf Memtes, we actually find two examples. Um, their examples are quite obscure, but they will serve a purpose for us. So, for example, the, uh, the Gemara has a discussion between God and the innocent children of the wicked among Kalal Yisrael, who die prematurely. And in this Gemara, these deceased children, they actually protest to Hashem, saying, Ribbonu shal olam, master of the world, me'acher she'ata Right, the, the fact that in the, you know in the afterlife you're gonna you're gonna um, pay back these individuals. Lama hik hesa Why then would you blunt their teeth in them? And the Gemara, um, the way the Mefarshim understand this part of the Gemara, why would you blunt their teeth by also taking their children in this world? Meaning, why would you hit them twice? So. That's one example. Now, it's not saying that God is going to strike the teeth of these individuals, but it's a figure of speech. In a second example, in a completely unrelated story, but it's on the same page of the Gemara, so Rabba, the Gemara tells us, he, he hands his son Abba um, the creamy date that his own father, Rav Huna, had awarded to him. And Rav Huna complained to Rabba, saying, B'ni libi shinai. He says, my son, you have made my heart rejoice, and that's why I gave you the, the date, but you've blunted my teeth by giving my reward to you, to your son. So again, it's a form of an insult. It's a form, meaning he didn't actually punch him in the teeth or he didn't change the color of his teeth, but he's saying that you, you've done such a thing to me. Another, another example comes up in the Tocha, actually, in the, um, the Midrash on the Tocha, in the Torah's Kohanim, Hey Dalad. The um, Rash, you look, to, look at Rashi's comments to Vayikra, Chavav Chav, twenty six twenty in Vayikra. So we find the imagery of, once again of teeth being dulled. It's describing the insult to the individual who toils, but he toils for nothing because all of his his um, work is going to go is going to go to naught. And it says that his teeth are going to be dulled. Same lashon. And. So, and again, another example where you see such an expression where 
the the term the dulling of the teeth has nothing to do with an actual physical um, attack. The Gemara Mavakama and Chavzayin Amabez has a similar lotion. It's not teeth blunting, but teeth smashing. It's not it's not a hakeis shinov. It's but it's uh, it's sheber. The Gemara Mavakama says um, this quote in the name of Ben Bagbag, um, which you might be familiar from either the Shmaki song or from Pirkevos. But Ben Bagbag says that if a person wants to, if, let's say someone steals property from another one, another person, someone steals your property, right? So the Gemara says that a person shouldn't try to sneak into the other guy's house to steal his own property back, because then he's going to appear like a thief in the night. What should he do? It says that she bear. He should break the teeth of of the person who stole his object and just say, "I'm coming to take it." And Rashi right there explains ela she bear shinov kilomar. Is it to say kach bechazaka? Take it with 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 force. In other words, be deliberate, be blatant, but don't sneak around like a like a guilty thief. But again, clearly, even though it's not the same lashon, but we find um, this this um, uh, lashon of something happening to the teeth of the, of the individual. What you're supposed to do, I and mean, it clearly has nothing to do with striking him. Um, and perhaps a, a final example that's really close to home is we find regarding what the Mishnah Bura has to comment on when it talks about the laws of Shabbos Hagadol of all things. So in Arachaim, if you look up in Taflam at four thirty. Look in Aleph, Aleph. So the Mishnah right there. So Simon Aleph, Sif Aleph, and Os Aleph in the Mishnah He describes the Egyptians, what, when they see what the Bnei Israel are going to do to their own gods, they're going to slaughter the sheep, the Egyptian gods. So the Lashon says, Shinehem Kehos. Their teeth are going to be blunted. What does it mean? It means that they're, 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 their teeth, they're going to gnash their teeth. They're, they're t- on their... Um, Actually, you know, you find out there's a Kliyakar um, to Bamidbar, Lamid Gimel Dalad, who utilizes the same exact imagery to describe the Egyptians when they see the Bnei Israel marching out of Egypt while the Egyptians were still burying their deceased. Vayushinayim Kehos, and their teeth will be blunted. So what are we seeing? Um, you know, when, when people grit their teeth together, people get frustrated, they're upset about something, and that changes the color of their teeth. But again, no one is hitting anyone's mouth. What all of the sources seem to have in common is that none of them do what we find, you know, in none of these sources do we find a person dealing a physical blow to anyone's mouth. So now that we understand that, then what does the Haggadah mean when he uses this expression? So I think the answer is that the Haggadah is telling us we have to stick it to the Russia that we do have to try to find a way to actually not just answer the, the Russia's question, which I guess perhaps you could do, but the Haggadah is instructing us to actually frustrate him and to silence him, which means that one is not merely to sink to the Russia's level and just respond in kind, but to completely blow him out of the water means to sometimes hit a nerve if necessary. And like that Gemara in Bavakama urges, we don't want to appear like a thief in the night, we got to break his teeth. we got to attack him head on. But again, attack should not be taken literally. We're attacking him based on his arguments. And the, the, the point is not just to rile him up. Right? That's what the rush is trying to do. The rush is trying to rile everybody up. But there's a specific strategy which the Haggadah has in mind here. And it's further implied by the Slashon of, of Hakaha, of, of blunting. And it's specifically the idea of breaking or weakening the other individual's position or his standing, his argument. If you look at the Ramban's lengthy comments in the end of Beratius, in 
Mem Tes Yur. And it's on the Pasuk, Velo Yikhas Amim. That Lashon Yikhas is the same exact idea of blunting. He, and there he cites a plethora of, of other such examples of expressions, including our very own case in Haggadah. And he says this is the point. The point is that you're trying to break his standing. And in the case of the Russia or the thief who has something of your possessions, so we should rightfully interpret this phrase colloquially as taking the teeth out of his argument. Right? To utterly silence him with the perfect blend of, I guess, wit on the one hand and harsh but logical and unbridled honesty on the other. And in that vein, the response to the Russia is when he says, what does this, you know, what, what does this service mean to you? We're not, we don't just tell him, oh, here's what the service means to us. Right? We're not just answering him, but we actually tell those around him that you know, anyone who shares that same complacent attitude, so they would have not been saved. Meaning instead of just telling him, oh, by the way, here's why I like the Torah. Here's why I like doing the Avodah. Right, as if, you know, we, we do the Avodah because we like to. Right, you follow Halakha because you like to. Here's what it means to me. So we say, no, you know, if, you know people who had a similar attitude to you actually died. And th- 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 this is all super, super important because the Russia needs answering. And... I want, I want to use this opportunity to segue into um, a very related issue because it has everything to do with the Russia and the Haggadah. It has to do with, um, you know, a couple of years ago, I came across this article which was circulating um, and it was presented as a letter from the Wicked Son, from the Haggadah. And I have to say the article expressed sentiments and attitudes which are clearly to be blunt and yes pun intended they were very brazenly heretical and definitely condescending towards traditional judaism and i was particularly stricken by the fact that a number of fellow jews that i even know were actually sharing and endorsing this this article and the sentiments that were in them you know by extension and I want to share you the article, and I'll tell you, you know, this article, it, it might say something to you, and you have to hear this person's words, and I'll let them sink in. And my only caution is that if you plan on listening to the next few sentences, few paragraphs that I'm about to read you, don't stop the tape, don't even start listening to it unless you're prepared to listen to the rest of the podcast. But here's what the individual says. And if you want, I can share the link with this. But the, the, the article reads, Happy Passover from the Wicked Son. For the past 2,000 years, my question on Seder night has been misunderstood. And rather than answer me, you tell me that if I had been in Egypt, I wouldn't have been redeemed. But you are missing the point. See, I don't believe that the Exodus story in the Bible is literal history. I don't care if hypothetically, uh, if I hypothetically wouldn't have been redeemed in a narrative that I know to be fiction. But I could have been doing anything else tonight instead of coming to the Seder. I could have spent the night at a party, watching a movie, or on a weekend camping trip. But I decided to show up unlike the hordes of other absent sons that the Haggadah doesn't mention. Blunt my teeth and you can be assured that I will not attend the coming year. So why am I here? 
Well, as the wicked son, I am skeptical regarding the inherent meaning of many of the Seder rituals. Just like my question in the Haggadah reflects, I want to ask the other Seder guests what this service means to them. How is an ancient religious ritual, one based on a faulty history and an out-of-date theology, meaningful for anyone in the modern world? My question isn't one rooted in mockery, rather curiosity. I am not purposely excluding myself from the community. Rather, I'm interested in learning about learning more about the community. If anything, my presence tonight underscores that I want nothing more than to be a part of this community. However, unlike the other sons in the Haggadah, I am not ignorant. For all the quote-unquote wisdom of the wise son, he doesn't even seem to have any knowledge of the various laws surrounding the Passover offering, let alone any understanding of the world at large. Ditto, and even more so for the last two. My question doesn't arise from a dearth of knowledge about what is going on tonight. I know all of the laws of the Passover offering. I know the verses about the Exodus and the Germain rabbinic commentary inside out. I do not need to sit at this Seder and have these things explained to me in an overly simplified manner like my Haggadic brothers. What my question is about and what I am interested in learning about is the meaning that individuals find in their stories and communities. Clearly, there's something buried within the context of the Seder night past all of the superficial archaic and dull details of the Passover offering that is captivating enough for Jews of all types around the world to gather around and discuss. Perhaps, if my question is answered in a civil and thoughtful way, I will one day take the role of the parent answering the next generation of wicked sons. So please, without blunting my teeth and telling me that I would not have been redeemed, try to answer my question, what does this service mean to you? Okay, so... Part of me wants to vomit every time I read that. Um, and you might have different thoughts about this individual, about what he about what he had to share. You might have thought maybe part of his argument was maybe somewhat compelling. Maybe it teaches us to maybe be a little bit more uh, sympathetic towards individuals who think differently than we do, I guess. I know some people I, I spoke to thought that this article was not even a, 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 a fair portrayal of the Russia, but it was a better portrayal of the Shane de la Shoal because he really doesn't demonstrate that he knows how to ask a question. But I thought that in a certain sense, he did a very good job portraying the Russia because he teaches us to look at the Russia as he is. See, because he, he you know, he this person seems like he wanted to sort of uh, give us a chiddish and teach us how to look at the Russia differently instead of just labeling him a wicked person. Look at him as a person. And, and, and instead, you know, to, to be civil, to be able to have a conversation, right, and stop blaming the Russia, calling him wicked. You know, maybe he's just, you know, he's the misunderstood child. And, you know, maybe there's something to be said about that but I still believe that could be the Russia. I still believe that is the Russia. And I think it's a mitzvah to know how to answer this individual. You have to know how to answer the apikaris, as he says in Berkeyevos. And even though maybe I shouldn't have given this individual enough credit, certainly, you know, to, to, to share his, his sentiments on this podcast, I did respond a few years ago. I wrote a response letter to this individual. I never heard back. But I'm going to share you my response. And a response... Um, if not to this individual, it's, it's, it's warranted for anyone who might have seen his sentiments. So here's my response letter. 
Okay, it's response letter to the wicked son. Thank you, wicked son, for coming to our Seder. Before I begin, I must preface with the fact that while I, de- while I care deeply about you and your questions, I do not intend to sugarcoat my response, nor will I be veiling any rebuke. If you hear a tone of any rebuke in my written voice, don't take it as a hint. Take it as an explicit call out. In fact, because I care about you and your questions, I want to properly address you, Kenegdecha, specifically and precisely as is befitting you, addressing both your question and your attitude, as the Haggadah brilliantly dictates I should. Now, before I address your questions head on, I must state that although you clearly feel like you are misunderstood, I think you are the one who is misunderstanding not just us, but the biblical and rabbinic texts which you claim to know inside out. Don't get us wrong. We do applaud you for coming, and even if we have to set you straight in your faulty way of thinking and your lack of religious observance. But again, besides for obvious frustration, your letter reveals a lack of understanding of even the most superficial reading of the Haggadah, which must be addressed. So I'm glad you came for the genuine purposes of being educated. Again, the one thing you mentioned that you are 100% correct about is that you did come out here when you could have been anywhere else. That being the case, I have to ask, are you really here as a curious spectator or are you here as an obnoxious skeptic? The question is only slightly rhetorical because I have a hunch as to which one is true. Honestly, though, for whichever reason you are here, whether you like it or not, you are supposedly Jewish, and you are awkwardly present at the Jewish service while apparently not engaging in that said service. It is, at the very least, insulting to what I and the others present at the Seder believe in. Forgive me, but that's why I feel that I must assume that your question is rooted in mockery. Because, again, you stated it yourself. You didn't have to be here. You didn't have to express your curiosity in a provocative way at the Seder table during the service, and doing so at the expense of insulting the service and its observers. Despite all of that, please also understand that no one intends to physically blunt your teeth. The meaning of teeth blunting, as it appears every so often in rabbinic literature, is not meant literally. But of course, you already know that considering your self-professed literacy and fluency in rabbinic texts. If you are willing to open one of these books, I can direct you to several other rabbinic sources where the same language of teeth blunting is used, clearly intended metaphorically. You can see two occurrences in Sota 49a, Bavakama 27b, Mishnah Baruta Arachayim 430.11. If you would like some other sources, I have plenty more for you upon request. So if this teeth blunting is not meant literally, then what does this figure of speech actually mean? Blunting one's teeth in this context simply means to silence the individual, properly taking the teeth out of his or her argument, even if doing so means being brutally honest and perhaps hitting a nerve in the process. Your point would otherwise be well taken. Indeed, as I will demonstrate shortly, although you claimed that you were never given a civil and thoughtful answer, on the very contrary, Thalgada's answer, understood properly, is not only civil, but it's ingenious. Realize that we are more than open to the polite intellectual conversation which you are purportedly inviting us to. We invite you as well. What else is the Seder for? With that said... Although I will likely upset you, and although my words may cause you to grit your teeth until they are dulled, I promise that I will neither physically harm you nor reject you from this community as I proceed to figuratively blunt your teeth. Now, since you do demonstrate somewhat of a vested interest, I must also ask you, do you actually want nothing more than to be a part of this community? Do you actually wish to inspire the next generation? You stated that you do, but as per your arguments, I'm not convinced. If you do really want to be a part, then why are you not participating? 
Surely, your participation would immediately make you one in this community. But since you refuse to participate, you don't really want to be a part of this community. You just want to sit here comfortably without anyone calling you out or telling you off. And if you really don't want to be a part of the community, which is what the rest of your words imply, although I would not send you off myself, you really shouldn't be here at all. The Seder is not a show, at least not for outsiders. But by being here at the service, and yet refusing to participate, you have indeed excluded yourself from the community in the most fundamental sense of the term. And if your theoretical participation and involvement in this community is really just dependent on this simple question of what's meaningful, we have something else to talk about. Because make no mistake, your question as you asked it, is it still indeed rooted, if not in mockery, which I'm thoroughly convinced it is, then in a fundamental flaw in your understanding of the Jewish religion. You claim that it's an innocent and honest question. Why is this meaningful to you? But in asking that question, you imply that I merely practice because indeed I find the practice meaningful. What is, the, I mean, that, that, that is what your question assumes. And that is where your logic is flawed. Why is the service meaningful to me? My answer, it doesn't matter whether or not I find it meaningful. What if it isn't meaningful to me in the slightest? According to your logic, I should just stop participating. But that is the difference between me and you. Or you and I. I do not practice because it is simply meaningful to me. But because, unlike you, I humbly submit to my tradition and I believe that my life depends on this service, as my tradition teaches, and so forth. The bonus, though, is that all of that does make it pretty meaningful, doesn't it? But enough about me. How about you? Why isn't this service meaningful to you? Oh, so you claim that it's because you don't see the legitimacy in the tradition. Well, why not? Is it because you have done research and have determined the tradition to be illegitimate? Is it because you are the arbiter of theology? that you can claim this tradition's depiction of theology as out of date? If you claim to know the biblical account to be fictional, I would certainly hope you have done that research. And if not, you have some homework to do before you start making bold, provocative, and insulting claims which you present in the guise of polite curiosity and victimhood. As for me, my tradition has been passed down from at least three million eyewitnesses through generations until it had reached me. That's the very first step of my homework, which I continue to engage in daily. And if you can claim that you have done all the necessary research to make you reasonably skeptical against three million eyewitnesses, something that George Washington's presidency did not even have or claim to have, but was yet confirmed, so show me your documented proof that the exodus did not take place. Let's be honest here. You have no real counterproofs to this historical reality, while I have, at the very least, what's referred to as a vibrant tradition from my forefathers. But since you apparently cannot accept the minhag, and you're too stubborn to even entertain the possibility that your understanding of the world at large is incorrect, you assume perforce that I must find something else appealing about the services. The religious individual's unwavering faith in the truth of the tradition is not an answer you can accept. That's what makes you a kofar be'ikr, and again, why I assume that your question is rooted in mockery. As much as one ought to rightfully feel insulted by your attitude, I personally feel for you. And although I will not send you away, recognize that you are stubborn and insatiable, and therefore don't actually belong here by virtue of your own principles, at least not at the present moment. Of course, you are not necessarily beyond help. You have a chance like anyone else does. 
you would have to grant yourself some room to receive, to be educated. But like everything in life, that is ultimately up to you. You can continue to be conceited and see where it gets you. Or you can include yourself in a communal service that will bring you eternal life. And I hope you make the correct decision because the same Russia who was not redeemed at the time of the Exodus will have a slim chance in a redemption to come, something else our tradition believes in. But please don't be mistaken. Understand that I have no intentions of defeating you personally. This is not a retort to you as much as it is a plea that someone or something would come and help you, or really that you would just help yourself. Indeed, I'm not even pleading to you, but for you. In the same vein, the Haggadah's words of condemnation against you was not a direct retort to you. That ex- that's exactly why the text of the Haggadah, which you misread, speaks not to you in the second person, but to everyone else about you in the third person. Leave a low low. In other words, the Russia is not told directly in anyone's anger in any, uh, that, that he would have been that he would not have been redeemed. This observation is stated about the Russia purely matter-of-factly for the benefit and welfare of the actual Seder participants. And several brilliant commentators made this simple observation, and had you done your due diligence by properly reading this simple Haggadah text with intellectual honesty instead of yelling at it, you might have figured that out on your own. But I digress. Now, why doesn't the Haggadah address the Russia in the second person? The Haggadah does not instruct me, the father, to answer you, the wicked son, directly, because the astute sages who compiled the Haggadah understood that I cannot, nor can anyone, do anything to change you, whether we present you the best argument or whether someone would physically strike you in the mouth, which no one intended to do in the first place. Nothing meaningful about the service will inspire you to engage in the demanding service, and you knew this when you sat down at the Seder table. Yet, instead of being somewhere else, you chose to be here to rile up the crowd and attempt to pull the rug out from the believers because you are clearly so bothered, and perhaps jealous, of the faith and inspiration that everyone else here has, keeping them engaged in the service. And that's what makes you a Russia. That is why your attitude, more than your question, needs to be addressed. But of course, we mistook your question, which was really asked in the name of the curious and victimized son, right? Thus I turn not to you, but to anyone else who is actually willing to listen and learn. To that audience, to whom I truly address this piece, I say that the choice is yours and yours alone. For those who are evidently not looking to change, all I can do is plead to the God whom I proudly believe redeemed me that all of the sons make the right choice, come around and ultimately realize that it was for the sake of this very service that Hashem acted for me when he took me forth from Egypt. Love always a concerned father. Now again, this, this is an important issue, and it's something that many people can miss. But we do have to know how to address the children of each generation, and we do need to be well aware of what they need. But we have to be able to answer these questions. We have to be able to, to, to recognize in, uh, you know, that which we have faith in and not, not shy away from the questions. We're completely, again, open to the civil conversation, but we have to know that conceited, you know, heresy where it creeps up. And it's always going to come in the guise of someone who is claiming to be victimized and is just curious and totally not provocative. But again, we have to be able to answer that. We have to know what each child is looking for. Sometimes it doesn't warrant an answer to them. And... 
you know, sometimes you just have to answer for the benefit of others. If that person's not going to change, then your job is not to change him. Your job might be to frustrate him by continuing your service and speaking to other individuals and inspiring them. Let this person, you know, grit his own teeth. But, you know, we do what we can to stick it to him and realize, you know, the delicate way to address all of the sons, but especially the Russia. Anyway, that's all the time we have left for this Real Talk Torah. And until the next time, and at all times, keep it real, keep talking, and most importantly, don't be a Russia, keep the Torah. Thanks for joining us here at the Database.